All right. <laughs> all right. The nod. <laughs> the nod. What, what I haven't learned in all the all the years of podcasting is nods don't translate on audio. Should remember that, shouldn't I? Cold over there, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, not so bad in Arizona. Uh, obviously, Texas had a hard time. Definitely a change in the in the temp here for this time of year, but nothing compared to what those guys are having to de- deal with down there. But UK as well, it's pretty rough, isn't it, at the moment? Just rains, just raining. Um, so actually here, like quite flooded. Lots of people being flooded, cold. You know, this it's like week by week, there's something. There's something kind of like this front is coming in or that front is coming in. Mm. Um, but, you know, lockdown, COVID, it's not like we've got anywhere to go anyway, is it? Um, what so I guess if you're going to have pants weather um, over the winter, um, yeah, we're going to be at home anyway. So I'm looking forward yeah. to hopefully, as we might discuss today in this podcast, being able to go out a bit more. As uh, as the situation improves and the weather improves, that'd be lovely. Yeah, it'd be nice to move on from this, wouldn't it, really? First and foremost, this podcast is about COVID and singing. Singing teachers, voice coaches. What are, what are the decisions we should be making right now in terms of teaching voice? If I'm a singer, and should I have a lesson? Should I, should I be singing in some, into somebody's face? What's the timeline for performances is something also we're going to be looking at today, right? Because that's something that we really, you know, let's let's try and build some hope here. Are we close? How close are we to, to getting back to some sort of normality when it comes to our industry? So that's what we're talking about. That's what we're going to be getting stuck into here yeah, today. Yeah, that's right. Kind of as we said before, a little bit of a, little bit of a status report from what we could get um, from or the information we could get from our guests today who kind of gave their time. Because, uh, yeah, no, I think we all know where we're at because of our own respective governments giving us updates or whatever, whichever country we're in the world. But um, but when it comes to singing-related stuff specifically, um, then obviously that information is very niche and it can be very hard to decode what all this means if you're a vocal coach at the moment or if you're a singer at the moment um, performing. And then as well, um, what's the prognosis? What's, what's the prediction um, for how people feel like specifically our industry is going to emerge when it might emerge, how it might look all those things. So yeah, that's, that's hopefully also another aspect of what we're able to bring today, the current and a little bit of the future. Yeah. And uh, we've enlisted the help straight from the horse's mouth. You could say we felt like that was most uh, valuable for us and our listeners is to is to go to the people that have been dealing with it on a day to day and that's uh, professor shelley miller and professor shiv pilai they're enveloped in in this whole pandemic at the moment uh, helping in so many different areas and yet they still found that it was necessary to help um, to help people and to help our industry again because we made it very clear to them that uh, there is some misinformation there's lots of opinions circulating and there's also a lot of biases going on uh, which often govern people's decisions. So it's really important to, to hear it clearly. Just to clarify though, Professor Shelley Miller, she is a professor in mechanical engineering and, um, and that's the University of Colorado Boulder. But she's an expertise in the control of airborne infectious disease, which is really, really pertinent to our industry given that singing um, will emit particles whether that be in a small room with a 
you know, in a lesson or whether that be on a stage and what effect that has and what we can do to, to, to work around that. Secondly, Shiv Pillai is a professor of medicine and health science and technology at Harvard Medical School. And he's been heavily in the forefront um, for the teams that have been working for us to get over this pandemic. He's a wealth of knowledge in terms of how COVID actually affects the body. And then again, for us as singers, how directly does that affect us? Lungs are important for any human being, but you know, what does that mean for singers in the long term? Now, with that said, with these two, you know, incredible people coming on here, there is there's gonna be a lot of logical things said uh, for sure and um, a lot of things that people already know uh, very simple especially if you're a believer of science uh, but this is, so so it depends on where you're coming from what your perspective is but we, we're really looking to lay this out as simple as possible as factually as possible based on science research and um, in some way of course you have, because these these uh, these areas have to be have to be bridged somewhat of their opinions as well on on um on the current circumstances and in the future let me just sip i've got to sip my drink just want to show off because it's not live we're not doing it live this time so i you know i can have a cocktail hmm. and if you if you want to know what that is it's an east village athletics club what a, what a name for a cocktail but it's not the name for the cocktail it is it is and if you like tequila if you like a like a swing on a margarita that one's for you okay all right so thanks mate if there's thanks. anything that you got from today it's another way to get smashed at home so you're welcome shall we yep um cool. uh, just gonna cue the... you got it up i mean at least get it ready <laughs> god right let's get into it save how, me how do i know this is what we need to do because it's getting <laughs> Can we, how does, how does COVID affect the body? Was one of the first questions that we had to, to create the context for then how does it lead to affecting singers more directly? And we went straight to Shiv for this question. The virus itself, if you think about it, it has, it has 29 genes. Okay, it has 29 different genes. At least 10 of them, all they do is to block our immune systems from responding. So if you just think about our immune system having a, an effective part, which is good for viruses, and another effective part, which is good against bacteria, what is happening in us, I'm, I'm simple, oversimplifying, mm -hmm. the part against viruses is completely screwed up because the virus comes and blocks everything there. But then the part that works against bacteria, which we don't need now, is now being turned on like crazy. And so it's like a dysfunctional immune system out of control and getting the severe inflammation. It's happening in the lungs because that's where the virus goes. The virus starts off in the nose typically and then goes to the lungs, sits in the lung, destroys a lot of cells in the lungs. As it destroys cells, the damaged and destroyed cells release stuff which drives even more inflammation. So you get the severe inflammation. So it takes some time to clear the virus. So in someone who's got, so in the majority of people, the disease is not severe. Okay, let's assume that this, in many is asymptomatic. Those are the people who probably got a much smaller inoculum, so much less virus to begin with. When they got that virus, their immune systems were able to clear it 
before the virus completely disrupted things. Okay, and that's that's what we want. But that happens only if you've got some smaller inoculum. Now, of course, if you were highly obese or you had uh, diabetes, you know, some pre-existing conditions, then maybe even a small inoculum we wouldn't have been fully protected against. And there are some mechanisms that we understand for that. So in that fraction of people, maybe 10 to 15% who get severe disease, uh, they tend to be people, it's not always older people, okay? There are people in the 30s who've died. It's not always obese people. It's, you know, healthcare workers who are young have died. Uh, it's probably, they got a big inoculum. In the days when we didn't have proper PPE and so on, there were people getting big inoculum. They were seeing patients again and again. They were sometimes, you know, intubating them and therefore things, you know, would come out. This would be a problem. So this was the reason why uh, I think basically, just one second. So basically because the virus can so easily inhibit our immune systems in, in people in whom you let it get in enough, or it can actually, uh, in people who are susceptible also, you know, take hold easily. And then in anyone, even if they had mild disease, the problem with this virus has been, if you had mild disease, with SARS, you would, it would have been fine. Nothing would have happened. We wouldn't even have known you had disease, and that would be it. And this disease, you transmit. There's one other aspect to this that I think is really, really, um, it really pertains to our industry. Um, and that comes down to breathing, you know, um, is, is, is useful in singing um, as it is to stay alive. But the, but what, given your experience, seeing what this does within the body, um, I loved your talk. Um, we watched through one, a few of your talks, actually. But, but when you, were, if you could, if you could simplify this, not because we don't think our our crowd, um, uh, some of them may be immunologists, but but a, a lot of them aren't. But if you could just, it would be brilliant if you could talk around for a second how the body um, works in terms of the innate immune system and the adaptive, and how that then plays out in terms of the effect within the cells. And, and I guess without going too deep, um, for those who wouldn't know, but then what that, the consequences of that within the tissue. Um, and this, sorry, twofold question there, sorry to load you, but the second part of that would be, there was a st I think we saw a study recently from um, I think it was Professor Gleason of Oxford about this long-term effect on the lung tissue and that they were seeing some, some of that happening. I, I wonder what your thoughts were on that. Okay, so that, that's an important issue. So let me address both. So initially, of course, so a lot of the disease is probably caused by the innate immune system and then maybe there's a contribution coming in from adaptive immunity. Innate immunity is the part of the immune system that responds immediately. Adaptive immunity is much more specific, but it takes, you know, a few days. It doesn't because you have to expand some cells and you're seeing very specific shapes. So innate immunity, again, we break into two halves. One half we call the antiviral state, the other half you can call inflammation. The antiviral state is being stymied by this virus. So if you've got a low dose, you do create enough of your antiviral state before the virus has multiplied enough and you might control stuff. If you have more virus coming in and if you're plus, if you're more susceptible, the virus blocks the antiviral response, the type one interferon response. There is some information now to suggest that people who get severe disease, a percentage of them already have, they have an, an, an autoimmune response against 
the Taiwan and the France themselves, the ones that protect us from the virus, they are, we, they're already making less of them because they're, made, they're already making antibodies against that type 1 interferon molecule within them. A small number of people have genetic mutations in this type 1 interferon. The type 1 interferons are the antiviral state molecules. And so defects in the antiviral state compounded by the fact that the virus impairs the antiviral state being generated allows the virus, because the virus is still foreign, to induce a lot of inflammation, which you don't need, but you're getting, going to get it because there's virus and there's also damaged cells. And that inflammation is what causes damage. Now, you do get activation of adaptive immunity also, which may then compound the damage later on. Now, the question that you're trying to address, so why, why is the damage? Are some cells getting infected, some cells dying, uh, in response, they're releasing stuff, they're activating more innate immune cells, which are again getting activated, but the response is not what you want. It's not the antiviral state. You're getting inflammation each time. Inflammation is basically trashes the neighborhood, right? Because cells die, they release things, they release molecules that activate, you know, they're trying to kill bacteria, but that's not good for our cells. Now, the question is, uh, can viruses actually cause long-term problems in the lung. And it's probably a combination of two things. So I would say that, yes, if you're severely ill, uh, maybe you will have some lung impairment for many, many months, maybe for years. We don't know that yet. We can't, we can only guess that maybe it'll be there for years. Maybe, maybe you're going to get damage. Maybe you get a little bit of scarring in the lung. This is if you get severe infection. You get mild infection, for the most part, you're probably going to be fine. Okay, That's the guess. Unless you're genetically susceptible in some way to be getting this process called fibrosis, like scarring, right? So if you're sort of genetically susceptible to get fibrosis, so what we think for most human diseases, and when I say most human diseases, they're diseases we don't understand, right? Whether it's lupus or pulmonary fibrosis or, you know, scleroderma or diabetes, these things we don't fully understand. But in most of these diseases, what we think causes disease is a couple of things. Maybe some genetic predisposition. It's not blatant, but there's some genetic predisposition. So you have variants of genes which add up to make you more susceptible. And then some inciting trigger, which is usually thought to be an infection, maybe a viral infection which then causes an imbalance in immunity. Okay, and then that imbalance is what is seen as disease. Now, if that imbalance causes tissue damage, and then the tissue damage causes our own, you know, molecules to come out and become immunogens, which means they activate our immune systems, then we're going to perpetuate that damage. You're going to go on attacking that tissue yourself because you now release things that are normally hidden, but now you responded to them thinking they're foreign. Okay, so that's one model for what might happen. So what is the evidence for this in terms of lung disease? There is some evidence. Okay, there's a disease called IPF, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or lung fibrosis. It's a very bad disease. Uh, so, some percentage of people definitely have clear-cut genetic mutations. So there is a clear-cut genetic susceptibility to IPF. No one thinks it's caused by a virus, but a virus may trigger it. 
And what is the evidence for that? There's some published evidence suggesting that certain viruses trigger IPF, meaning idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So they are, that they served as a trigger. So in general, we never identify the trigger that causes the disease. We just think of either the history, the person said, I had a fever, I had something, and then this started, and then we make some assumptions, right? And then we try to measure some antibodies after five years, and then try to make some assumptions. Because of COVID, so many people are getting infected. So many people can be followed, okay? And you can now say, okay, this is my cohort of 2,000 people who recovered. And maybe we'll see an increased incidence in some. It is possible. Connections have been made in the past, and no one is completely certain about them, to Epstein-Barr virus, to herpes infections, and all causing lung, you know, being triggers possibly for lung fibrosis. So that is something to worry about, okay? That for anybody, is it not for a singer or non-singer or anybody, anybody who got severe COVID, uh, there's this phenomenon called long COVID, you know, that people have, it persists for a long time. The people with X-ray changes for a long time. There's also a phenomenon now clear that in a lot of people, even if they, the lungs clear, they keep the virus going in the gut for some more months. So that the, the virus reaches the gut and multiplies in the gut, and then maybe it peters out. We haven't seen these things long enough to know, but there's some virus persisting sometimes, maybe somewhere else too. So there is a formal possibility that first of all, long COVID may be the precursor of some chronic disease, and this might happen. The chances are that since there's enough evidence to say some sort of infection serves as a trigger, that we will actually learn something about it, which is not a good thing for the people who get the disease, but that we might find out that this virus served as the trigger for specific syndromes that we know about, but we never connected to a specific pathogen that easily before, just because of the sheer numbers. I know there was probably a lot to take in there because that was a lot of information. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly I think it is really interesting to look at that as being a, as as in a summary of of how it really cr can create that sort of long long COVID situation, especially in the lungs, and from the damage and from the body the body's response to damaged cells is to consider them as foreign bodies, because the stuff inside those cells is just not supposed to be in the body, and the body reacts to them like it reacts to a bacteria or a virus, like like they're like they should be attacked, creating that insane amount of inflammation, and then increasing the chances of long-term damage um, within the lungs, which I thought was the, was the, was the really interesting part. So we hear long COVID a lot, um, but not sure exactly what, what it meant from, say, news reports and stuff like that. So he, when we heard Shiv talk about that, that was really interesting. Yes, um, with his experience and seeing it firsthand, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, I, I think the value, some of the value here is also, I can imagine there would still be a lot of people perhaps thinking yeah you know i get it like i get the fact that it's the the, the body doesn't quite know how to handle this virus and it is going out of control and that's that's what's made this virus so brilliant in its own makeup um but am i really gonna get it and if i do 
as Shiv pointed to there, am I going to have a mild dose or am I going to, and is my body being a young person, let's say, uh, going to be extremely capable of, of defeating the virus? And I'm sure there's a lot of people maybe with that thought in mind, which is why it leads on so well to our next question, where we went to Dr. Miller uh, and we asked, uh, what are the, you know, what are our chances of, of contracting COVID really you know and I know it could be a bit of a no-brainer but we'll, we'll see what she has to say about that when you share the air with other people you can it can be risky if you don't if you haven't any idea who's infectious and so you can always reduce the risk and, and you know we all need to understand that everything we do in life is risky you know even walking out the front door right um having a glass of wine every night ups your chance of, you know, X, Y, Z smoke, you know, so we do things every day as a human that's risky, but you, but you, and we're also not very good at assessing what's risky relative to something else. So we're trying to mitigate the risk of you getting infected, but at the same time, you know, understanding that, that life is full of risks, right. And what do you want to take on as an individual? Yes, yeah, so I think one of the one of the uh, strongest uh, points there. Again, um, no brainer, I'm sure, to some people. But we're we are we're we're inherently bad at assessing risk, and um, especially with this situation, you can see it. And we've watched it over the past year, haven't we? Uh, it being so new, no one really knowing what the outcome is going to be. We still don't know what the consequences of this COVID virus. You know, what what are what are what are the consequences? I don't know. Am I going to get? It? I don't know. If I get it, is it bad? I don't know. So how do I make a? How do I make the best decision? And I guess it's there's no real straight answer there aside from I guess we've been leading with, do what you can to reduce the like like Dr. Miller says there, do what you can to reduce the risks that we know. Um, we know yeah. that it's out there. We know there's some some things being put in place to to mitigate that risk. And so we should just for just for humanity's sake do what we can to make that um make yeah that happen well yeah and especially when you when you consider what um uh, shiv said about you know the the amount of the dose that you get and how that might affect you yeah again part of the risk assessment in your head would be like how can you ever know how much you're going to get if you're going to get it and and how that leads to how bad the disease can be for you so again like yeah the risk the risk is too tricky to assess on your own in that sense so yeah mitigate where we can but also um i think shiv talks uh, in a second about really how risky is it for us to catch it a second time what is it like for people who have maybe already had this virus of course you shouldn't be in a closed room unless both of you have been vaccinated, okay? Or if both of you had pretty severe COVID in the last two or three months, but you know, it's not gonna last forever even in people who got the infection, the immunity. So if you get infected, you do get immunity, but it does not last. In a few people, it will last. In the majority, it will not, okay? So uh, you can't take that risk of saying I'm protected because we are not. This is not measles. Measles, you're protected for life. With this virus, maybe you'll be protected for a year. Maybe there'll be about 5 to 10% of people who will be protected for a longer time. And we think we understand why that is. There's a mechanism to it. And this is what happened in SARS as well. 90% of the people made antibodies for about a year, then it petered out. And about 10 to 15% people had antibodies for longer. 
And it's very similar. What's happening now is very similar. This, there's very little difference in the two viruses, except for the major fact that this version of the virus, the current virus, is transmitted so much easily, more easily. And we as a human species lacked any kind of pre-existing protection, which means antibodies. So normally you get the flu, you have some antibodies from three years ago, which are sort of cross-reactive and they give you a little bit of protection. And so some people do succumb, but most people make it through, right? Because they have some protection. But this is a virus we are completely naked against. We didn't have anything. Again, detailed from Shiv, he definitely gives us everything that we need. But for me, that is that is kind of like a, a very detailed shoulder shrug because it's kind of like, don't know, don't know, don't know. You know, okay. we've got, no. at the end of the day, I guess time will tell for all this thing. So we don't really know how it's going to play out for a second time or whatever the the immunity you might have and how that might put the industry that we're in at risk in future it's, it's hard to tell so so i guess i guess we could move on from that and we we'll leave it ambiguous until we get uh, more information from these guys yeah 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 and i think moving on here to something more salient for singers is um because you've probably noticed it in your you know, on, on the forums, Facebook groups, etc. Across this past year, there have been, understandably, there's been questions asked. If I open, if I open this room, over, if I, if, if this thing is out of the building and I'm in the building, is that okay? If I have a window open and, uh, and I am behind perspex, I mean, is that, am I good then? There's a lot, of, again, where, you understand where it's coming from. It is a, a lot of the time I feel it comes from a place of, I need this to work because it's my job uh, what what you know what first up what are the risks for does it does the increase uh does the risk increase as a singer whether that be on stage and or in a small room with someone kind of feels like a no-brainer but then secondly you know what can i do and we get on to that but first up let's, let's, let's see what what um um dr p lion uh, dr miller have to say about the singing aspect of this when you sing you know, and you, you're actually, because the virus is in your nose and in your throat, when you sing these virus part, you, droplets are going to come out, right? We talk, we know droplets are coming out, right? So droplets of various sizes are coming out. They're going to spread for a few feet from you. And so the chances of getting infected in a prolonged conversation or when you're singing loudly or when you're shouting are reasonably high. And, uh, you know, you don't want to take those chances. The pieces that have worked that I have seen that I consider high quality um, are all pretty consistent with each other. And they go back, you know, we've we've measured aerosol generation rates from singing, talking, breathing. You know, there's a, there's a few really good studies and some of them have even come out, you know, five years ago and what have you. But, but to me, they're all pretty consistent and our data in our lab are also consistent to show that, you know, singing does generate aerosol and, and we can measure it. And then you also can document plenty of outbreaks related to singing. And so putting those two pieces together suggests and, until we, I'm a precautionary person and so suggests as an engineer that we, we need to mitigate this situation until we know otherwise. So yes, she mentioned the word aerosols in that, in that video there. And that is the medium through which this transmission is, is um, suggested to occur in singing and uh, so i think it's worthwhile right now for anybody who's been who's missed that 
um, that aspect of COVID-19, then we will just hear what Dr. Miller's got to say about aerosol transmission and everything surrounding that in the next video. So let's start with when you're talking. If you're talking, you will reduce, you will, re you will emit respiratory particles. And those are small droplets of saliva that can contain the virus. There are two ways to be exposed. One is what I like to call a short range and the other is long range. So short range means I'm really close to you and we're having a, a conversation within three feet. That short range is risky because you are in each other's personal cloud. And if I'm talking and you're talking, chances are really high that we're gonna be breathing each other's uh, released air, which can, can contain the virus. The only way to mitigate that risk is by wearing masks and socially distancing. So now you removed yourself from the, your personal clouds. When you go to long range possible exposures, that's where somebody across the room has been shedding a ton of virus and you're stuck in the same indoor environment with poor ventilation and the, the virus builds up in the space and you inhale it and become infected way across the other side of the room. Now, the only way to mitigate that risk is by adding ventilation and air cleaning to the space. And that way you can, um, you can reduce the risk of, of exposure. And so Shelley there is, is kind of getting, getting closer and closer in her sort of recommendations and, and, and views on where we're going really with the environments that we're going to be in as singers and singing teachers. Because mm. we are, I guess, in, <laughs> in the first room I ever taught in, I guess we could call that short range <laughs> because it was a box. <laughs> right, right, exactly that. Does, does acoustic panelling and foam catch this far? I don't know, probably not. Um, so that would have been like Shabon. straight in my face. Um, however, um, in, in, especially in the performance environments and some of the, let's say, group class tuitions, we're going to be quite long range. So as she's getting towards, yeah, ventilation is going to be a major feature as to how we could keep spaces safe going forward. Mm. And, and on from there, it's, it's really good to see what, 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 what the guys say next in terms of, I'm sure there's a lot of choir singers listening to this. Um, and uh, there's been a, you know, this choir in this state is, you know, they've had an outbreak. Is it real? You know, did, was it really the rehearsal that did it? There's um, these studies that say, yes, group singing will encourage transmission. We're going to hear it from the horse's mouth. We did a, a detailed study of the Skagit Valley Choral outbreak in Washington that happened in March and talked to the choral members and tried to understand what their infection control practices were at the time. and and took into account the prevalence rate in the area, which was low, but you know, it was still in Washington and really determined that the only way that many people could be infected in two and a half hours was because of the particles released while singing. But there were a lot of people singing, you know, 60 people in the room singing. Herd immunity will not come from natural infection in this case. Herd immunity, what it means is that enough people in the population have been vaccinated and immunized so that when the virus wants to jump from one person to the next, there's no one to jump to. You know, even if I got the virus, if the five people I see all protected, it just goes out, it doesn't make it in them. 
and then I don't spread it as much. And so that's how it dies out. And if there's enough people vaccinated, the virus will just disappear. It won't go away completely. It'll be there in some small pockets everywhere, somewhere in the world, but we'll become like New Zealand, which we should have been if we'd you know, been really careful. And uh, that's what we want to do. Then you can lead normal lives. And you know, if you, you know you're vaccinated, you don't worry about, you know, if I'm a, in a choir and almost every, everybody in the choir is vaccinated, of course, there's a theoretical chance that there's one person or someone whom the vaccine didn't work, that some people got infected, it's possible, but the chances are much lower, right? Because almost everybody got vaccinated. Okay, yeah, and that, so that obviously puts it kind of in perspective about the choir environment could be tricky um, to make safe in, in, a, in environments where immunization of most of the people in the choir isn't possible. Um, because it, I think we, even with the even with the ventilation aspect and you know other bits and pieces, um, unless they're all wearing masks and stood very far apart, it's going to be very difficult for a choir to function um, until until yeah vaccinations have have managed to to do their work on on a huge percentage of that that group. This is the tricky thing, isn't it? I think the underlying thing here, after listening to the to to these two, and um, and you know, just generally speaking, it might be an underlying, but we must be able to. Like, you must be. This is what I do with my life. This is what this is what I do. This is what the quiet. I must be able to do this thing, and and it and it does. You know, it just does kind of ground you in 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 the facts, really, doesn't it? That you know, right now. It just might not be possible in the yeah. way that we in the way that we want to experience it, you know. Um, and we we'll get onto that in a bit, but um, and but, coming you know, into even... the summer months, who knows? It could be an outdoor, could be an outdoor thing, you know. You never right. know. Um, people have done that in last summer, so so yeah. I guess I guess there's there's probably a safe way to do it somehow. Mm. I'm trying to find that way, and we we'll get onto that now actually, because we start to begin here to talk about what we can do, what we can do with coaches. And anybody looking to um, orchestrate singing within any any sort of room, whether that's a rehearsal studio um, or, or say like this, the box room that we're so used to teaching in as one-to-one -one <laughs> teachers. So the first thing that you want to do is to make sure that you have adequate ventilation. And that means that you are bringing in clean air into your space. The easiest way to bring in clean air is to bring open a window and bring in outside air from opening a window. Uh, we don't do that a lot in the US, but I know in the UK, you ventilate your buildings through natural ventilation, which means opening windows and doors. Uh, but that also means it's hard to control the temperature and the relative humidity in the room. So some people get uncomfortable if it's too cold or too hot. But in the, in the pandemic age, I would prefer to have an open window and a heater than, than to not open my window because I wanna, I wanna have more ventilation. The ventilation will do two things. It will dilute the virus concentration in the room. So it will be a lower level that you might be exposed to. And then it will also take out any, it will take out any virus and, and, and bring in virus-free air. If I, is one window enough? Can, will, will, that do, will that kind of do the job or is it better to have one window hit this side, one window that side? flow through I and mean, what is the situation there oh yes definitely the more windows the better and when you have two opposite the airflow will will help to create a much cleaner environment um, but if you can't open 
because it's cold out, at, at least six inches, one window, six inches open in one room would really help. It, what, what I did a back of the envelope calculation and saw that it, that in, it improved my ventilation by uh, order of like 30%. To have, to have a window ajar? Yeah, by six inches. Great, 30%, cool. Mm -hmm. And what, what would you say would be, does that achieve then the sort of the safety minimum for a, a particular size of room, you know? I think it needs to be a little bit higher than that. I, but that was for a house. Now, if you're talking about a studio or a commercial space that's already supposed to be ventilated, most homes are, not, are very poorly ventilated. But a commercial space you know, like a, a I hope a studio or an educational facility should have ventilation already. And then you, you enhance that ventilation by trying to open a window as well. And then we, if then we add on to that even another layer, which is we add air cleaning. So that's a whole addition. Yeah, so really the only thing that you can check for is to make sure you have enough ventilation in your space. And a proxy for that is to measure the carbon dioxide levels because every time you exhale, you are exhaling CO2 and you're also exhaling particles. And so if you can measure CO2 as a proxy for the exhaled breath that everyone is sharing, that can help you understand whether the, the exhaled breath is building up to a unsafe level or it's staying low enough so that you can mitigate some of the risk. Mm. And is that um, like a humidity meter? Is that something easily available on like Amazon or something? Uh-huh, yeah, you can buy them for between 100 and $200 and they're um, small, they're about the size of a phone and uh, they measure the CO2 in your space and that you can, you know, I'll be sitting in my office all by myself and it will, it will actually, you know, outside the CO2 level is 400 ish part, parts per million. And in my office, it gets up to six or 700. And we recommend to make sure your space is, is well ventilated, that it should be between 600 and 800 parts per million of CO2 in your space. And that was based on a research study of a university that had a tuberculosis outbreak because of ventilation. They mitigated and changed the ventilation and the CO2 levels came down, the ventilation was better and the tuberculosis outbreak stopped. The safest thing for everybody around you, especially if you're around older people as well, is to get vaccinated. If there are two people in the room who are vaccinated, you're good. Okay. I'm, in fact, if one of the two is vaccinated and there's only two people, that's reasonable, right? I mean, the one, if you're properly vaccinated, there's a 90% chance you're protected, but still 90%. It's not 100%. Okay. So there's a 90% chance you might be protected, around 90%. So there, maybe it's okay, right? But I would not assume anyone is not infected just because they say I have no symptoms. You cannot assume that. And uh, I would, I would prefer that if two people were in the same room, that they wear masks and they stay apart in general. Uh, even for a few months after, just as a habit, but even a few months after we have vaccination. If you have a small studio and you, know, you, you try to open a window or say you don't even have a window and you're measuring the CO2 and it, it, you cannot keep it low enough and it's, it's just 
um, you're struggling with the ventilation, then you can add air cleaning by buying a portable air cleaner that you can put in your space. And when you run it, it will bring in contaminated air, it will remove the particles physically from the air and release clean air. And so that way you're filtering the, the potentially virus containing air. So we do that here at our music school. So some of the small studios that we, that we can't provide enough ventilation for, we provide air cleaners. So yeah, Shelly there, she mentioned about um, uh, the CO2 levels and the ventilation in the room. And, and what was really great, she sent us a, uh, a research paper about how you can use CO2 monitors to measure ventilation in rooms, which we will share with the accompanying blog post um, on this episode. And you, get, you can get that. But I believe, Steve, you actually bought one of those for your group space and used it effectively. What, how, how, how do you use it? What are the numbers? And yeah. where did you get it from as well? Right, yeah. So, so this is yeah. You, that's it. So, as 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 Shelley said, it's it's a you're basically simply you're you're basically using it as a proxy for if there's CO two in the air, then there's likely to be COVID in the air if someone's infected in that room. So, it's you know if no one's infected in the room, then it it it's it doesn't make any difference. But if there is, it's one way in which you can mitigate um, mitigate that risk. So, the numbers fall down to there's a study in Taiwan and uh, something along the lines of there was workspaces and it was um, there was uh, it was just I don't know, I, I guess tens if not hundreds of workers in in buildings long story short they were measuring 3,000 parts per million of co2 in the air at that's at that rate it was off the, COVID was off the charts as soon so as the they, infection rate was higher yeah and as soon as they came in and intervened with okay we need to ventilate and we got that down to 600 parts per million it it eradicated the virus so it's and that is possible i think she was saying with that is possible um in certain rooms by opening windows you can well, still get that result i mean it's amazing to see actually i mean i was geeking out over it on we, we opened up on um um the the kind of the the group side of things you know we, we have a youth theater and we have group classics in in arizona so we opened up for the first time since march to 2020 last wednesday and uh and um short period to space out the 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 the, the class times and we had a, a space in between to ventilate the air and to clean and everything the co2 aspect i i used an airware and we'll, we'll place a link for this in the uh in the notes it's about $150 on Amazon. Um, I think that works out about £120. But the it's an amazing, amazing piece of kit. And you have, uh, it measures everything. It can, it, uh, allergens and everything in the air. Uh, but the CO2 aspect, it's really interesting to see. We, we're running these classes. There's no singing based on what we've seen here today. But we are doing acting and dancing. And the one class that was heavily dancing in within these four classes i saw and i could even show you on the on the graph on the on the app it's amazing it, it started to the co2 started to increase and it got to 602 and i freaked out no i no i, if I no but clearly that's still under the threshold because the the, the guidelines really i mean shelly says under 600 you need you really but it's between six and eight she says but um based on that study i think other people would say as long as it's under a thousand, you're good. But I saw it creep up to 602 and I just walked in there and I just opened our big shutter door in the back of the, 
the space and um, I just saw it drop just started to drop and it got down to 450 again and which is which correlates to outside air that's the kind of parts per million you're looking at for an outside air reading so it was so great to see that I was opening that shutter immediately the air is the, the air is is um circulating and and um the the bad air is moved out um, mm. and instantly so, applicable to anybody who's running group classes lessons whatever Mm. Oh, if you're in, if you're going to be in person with people, and this and the vaccination programs in your country aren't expansive yet, and might take even a year or two to get going, I, I just think that's such a valuable valuable technique that she shared there. Really, so good, so good. And you know, obviously, then Shiv he goes on to talk about vaccines, and you can <laughs> tell that from speaking with him that he's very, very. Um, I don't know, always go to far to say like uh, anxious to to get this vaccine rollout based on what he knows. And you know, what does it look like in the UK at the moment in terms of vaccine rollout? Are we in a, do you think teachers are going to be in a position to to um, to get involved in that based on what you you've come into contact with? Well, the rollout program here is is pretty extensive, and and other countries like I think Israel is one that have pretty much got through the population. So. So in some places, yes, the rollout system has been has been really quick. Um, mm. So I guess you know the industry will change in a different way um, where 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 I'm living. Um, certainly, my my vaccination, whenever I might get that, will be a long way off because I'm not vulnerable in any way. Mm. Um, but we have that scenario. But but the way that it kind of it works out, you know, in terms of the amount of people and the amount of vulnerable people that have been vaccinated, it's really really been done really well. But in the case of like people like my dad, for instance, he had his vaccine, but Wendy, his wife, has not had her vaccine because they're in completely different categories. So really, you know, it's like um, when you consider an entire situation, it gets actually gets a bit more complicated. It sounds really good to have a vaccine, but but when the person you're living with doesn't have the vaccine and as a vaccinated person, you can still transmit it. It doesn't create any freedom in that sense when when you look at it in that environment. So I think on on many levels, I think really it's it's yeah you're kind of waiting for a country to to get to a certain level of total population to be vaccinated, where you can start to ensure that most of those situations like my like my dad and his wife are are going to be actually beneficial to people resuming what might be mm. normal life. But I know in other countries, you know the the vaccine programs have not started or at really early stages what's the us like yeah generally speaking it started slow and um but arizona has been from what i hear you know it's had its hard times and in fact it was was that uh, one of the highest if not the highest in the world of areas of covid cases at certain points during this past year but at the same time it looks like it is is doing doing really well in terms of the vaccine rollout in fact i'm actually getting a vaccine on monday Whoa! Yeah. Wow, um, that was cool. That was quick. Yeah, but in the, but it's a different situation, and, and I'm not sure. I'll, I'll be honest with you, transparent. I'm not sure how I feel about it because I, I you know, I, 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 I'm in a position where I didn't, even, it didn't even cross my mind to, um, to have it done. Like I'm not a priority. Do, do you know what I mean? That, that that that's where my thinking was. It wasn't that I'm anti-vaccine. It's just more that there's other people that, that need it before me but um obviously we're going into, we're teaching we're going into you know children's situations 
but uh, it actually came up because here, because it's they're, they're, they're moving quick, there's a lot of sites uh, that need volunteers to go and work and where where the vaccine to be in dispense and so yeah yeah that was where it came about is we need volunteers and so we put our names forward and what happens is is that if you because they need to use the vaccines by the end of the day because they need to be thawed and then and then they just expire if they if they if they don't then uh, that's that's why the workers the volunteers then end up um being able to get a vaccine at the end of the day so um, that came about way quicker than I thought it was going to going to be for for me, but but nonetheless, it, I mean, it does. It's such a such a weird because I'm sure you've got friends as well, like are cracking on about, oh, you know, I shouldn't be forced to have a vaccine, or you know, is it am, am I going to die from the vaccine in a month's time? Like, no, it, it, there's a lot of conspiracies. Um, but um, I, I I'm not sure. How do you feel about it? How do you feel about the the conspiracies? And well, the... all, all I know is that there's no evidence to um, uh, to suggest it's really unsafe, and that's constantly reinforced by people that don't have a um, a reason to say otherwise. You know, not not poli not politician style, but you know, taking the information from from places and people that um, that are really at heart like like Shiv and, and and how he works in virology is just at heart he's just there to be helping people so so if that's the information that we're being given and that's right. what's going to be able to help us carry on then you know that's that's generally the advice that I will take um in order to do do a part so so that's kind of how I feel about it and that's what it comes down to isn't it in the day it comes down to what do you this is getting deep but it is i mean generally and i'm sure we've all experienced this over the past year especially with so many different flare-ups into uh and divisive moments in our lives whether it be you know the black um the uh, black lives matter movement um the 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 political landscape here with Trump, etc. There's been so many things that have divided people over this past year. And of course, the vaccines are going to fall into that because that's just seemingly the way that we interact with each other these days. But as you say, I think a lot of it comes down to what do you, what do you, in your one life that we have, what do you believe? Who do you believe? What do you trust? Who do you trust? And um, yes, I think we're running with, you know, if I trust in a scientist, an immunologist, um of course that could be conflicted because those people may have their hands tied who knows but if you trust in those people and what they're saying and then i die i wasn't being reckless at least right <laughs> yeah. at least i can say that wherever i end up well yeah you know you know that's what it, i think it's trust at the end of the day and there's with with, with lots of things there's um there's definitely been an impairment of trust uh, of people in high positions. So understandably, if that's already kind of at the foundation of how we feel about sort of, I guess, uh, the people in power and modern modern governments, if you like, then when the recommendation is to do something like a vaccine, we might still um, have that distrust. That's right. But now, that's it's, right. now it's now it's kind of, you know, I guess, uh, projected onto a vaccine instead of another decision that they might have made about something else in the country but but this vaccine comes way deeper than the pol political side you know it's 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 yeah from the immunologist and the people that really really want to help us so 
Yeah. I think we just need to get everybody immunized and, and then we can move on as a music industry as well. We've got to move on as a music industry. It has been so affected. One of the worst affected industries, along with like the travel industry as well, really badly affected. That's right. So, so with that in mind, we've got um, some other, some other common mitigations that, that um, Shelley's going to talk about here. Um, and, and some maybe some points in here about masks, etc. that maybe some people didn't know. So, so worth, worth listening to. We recommend all of our musicians who have, are following our recommendations from our study to put a mask on their instrument and to then also wear a mask on their face while they're playing their instrument. So if you are, so in a rehearsal where they had an ensemble of clarinets, um, two of the clarinet players had been exposed and become infected at a party and did not know it and came to the practice and played and what have you, but nobody else got infected because everyone was still wearing their masks and, the, and they were following our guidelines. So that can happen. And so at this time, we, we recommend, you know, following mitigation strategies. The teacher should always have this KN95 on. And, you know, cause I, I'm, I'm just anticipating that you, the teacher is just giving some instruction and then they're listening to the student and the, and the student is singing. You know, they're gonna be generating a lot of aerosol, but I, I think that there are a lot of teachers who would prefer that their student not wear a mask when they're singing. It would be best if the student wore a mask when they're singing, obviously. But um, if, you're, if you don't wanna do that, then that's how I recommend thinking about it. We, so we've got the masks and I think, I think we're at a place now in this COVID timeline where masks have done the full circle about 15 times and we're, we're at a place where I think most people believe that they work now. Um, now, but what about uh, visors, these plastic visors? I've seen mixed reviews on, on and, and mixed data on those. What are your thoughts on the visors? And how yeah, so I think they are fine and can be helpful in short range exposures, but you do need to wear a mask. I don't, I strongly discourage the visors without a mask. So for me, what I prefer to do is to wear my mask and also to wear glasses or little goggles that protect my eyes. The, the visor can change the airflow in the short range exposure area, like when you're close to a person and can keep big, big particles from hitting your face. But, um, but I don't want to see anyone with one of those and not without a mask. I think that's not smart. Shelley, that would go for, because I mean, it's, it's happening and we, and we see it, you know, and, and I think we understand why. Again, it's other factors coming into play. And I think a lot of them are financial, to be honest with you. But there's a lot of, um, I say there's, there's, there's theatres that are reopening and and they are deeming it okay to, you know, safe, I guess, safe enough to just wear these visors on stage. So you've got like, again, you've got, you know, 10 actors on stage with visors on. And, mm. and so you, you'd say that isn't, isn't really that efficient and um, really not the, the best course of action at this point. Yeah, I would think so, unless you unless you actually have a testing program in place. I mean, I think right now what I would do is make sure I understand what my ventilation strategies are. Talk to the building owner. If you're the owner, 
you know, make sure you know what your ventilation system is doing, or if all you have is natural ventilation, then make sure that you can open a window when you're using your studio. And if you can't, then add an air cleaner and also possibly monitor the CO2. I would make sure that you're socially distanced and that if you're the teacher, at least you are wearing a KN95. And if you don't want your student to be wearing an, you know, one, then they, they can be far apart from you, but you need to be wearing goggles on a KN95. And then for long range, I would keep trying to figure out how you can implement testing um, cheaply and weekly and what have you until you can get your vaccine. And one other strategy that we do recommend, this is based on research, our research and other, other scientists' research is that if you practice for 30 minutes and then you take a 15 minute break to allow the possible buildup of virus to decrease by ventilation. And then you start again for another 30, 30 minutes. If you're doing an hour, an hour session, then you would need an hour and 15 minutes. That would be also a safer way to provide an hour lesson. Trying to translate that is going to be interesting, isn't it? Like as Shelley spoke about putting a mask on an instrument. Um, I don't know, my mind went off just then, because uh, when she said about an instrument, I just instantly thought about a guitar. Don't know why. Like, how are you going to put a mask on a guitar? Because <laughs> um, my brain failed me at that point. Yeah, that's a weird like, one. Oh, yeah, it's, always the, it's the ones you blow in. They're the important ones, um, of yeah. course. Um, kind of, but any, kind of nevertheless... If anything else, kind of pointless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nevertheless, a clarinet with a mask on is still an amusing sight, I imagine. So... Um, that will stick yeah. with me. Um, but translating that for drums? Do you need it for drums? Yeah, it's like some guy took an hour to do this, and then the guy, the teacher, walks in and goes, "No, it's just for the wind instruments, man." Oh, wasting, wasting slap on. his head. Yeah, um, but yeah, no. On to singing. I guess, of course, singing teachers are going to be like, "Well, it probably is okay for me to wear a mask." Um, and that specific N95 mask, uh, KN95, sorry. Um, but for the singer to wear a mask, if it is like one to one to one tuition, and and the purpose is something quite, I guess, technical or refined um, in the singing, it's not really practical, I think, for um, learning to sing in order to in, for the singer to be wearing a mask. Because I mean, I don't know if you sang, sung with a mask on, but it's just muffled and impossible to really perceive yourself so mm. if you're teaching someone to sing in a very challenging environment then yes wear, <laughs> wear a mask um, and learn to sing uh, I guess somatically instead like only really feeling but really well, yeah. I guess it Sorry, I was going to say, unless we are also anticipating the fact that this is going to be our forever you know, it's like we will always right. be wearing masks like well we better get going and trying to figure out how to sing with a mask on then but fingers crossed that isn't going to yeah. be the case. Well, hopefully, like, hopefully the, uh, the, the ventilation aspect, the teacher wearing the, the appropriate protective gear mm. um, uh, can be enough to mitigate the risk 
um, in that environment, and then obviously one or both being vaccinated. You know, I guess I guess if everyone's vaccinated, then it's different. But but yeah, one being vaccinated as well within that group. Yeah, that might all that might help us to not have to um, put masks on absolutely everybody in the room, um, especially the singer. But yes, we'll yes. see how that pans out. Yes, and so that's, that's what we lead into next, which is really really cool. It's you know some positivity for a change. <laughs> Um, which At is last. yeah long last um uh, we we start to discuss what does the future look like you know if we start to look at these mitigation strategies that both Shelley and Shiv have spoken about in this interview when can we get back when can Broadway open when can we sing in front of people um let's have a listen you could still do a modified version of of teaching in person uh, with some of the mitigation strategies that we've been uh, trying to share with um, professionals and with educators. Uh, and, I, I, and I suspect that you're still going to have to do that for at least another year because the virus, you know, the, um, because of the rollout of the vaccines and it, and I just, I, I don't, I don't have any confidence in that, that we're going to be able to do anything like we used to for under a year. Sorry. <laughs> no, yes. Wow. Okay, I mean, these are guesses, but I would say that if the vaccine rollouts do go out and many people do get vaccinated, uh, again, you should be cautious about who you hang out with. Uh, maybe by the summer, you could be, you know, hanging out with people and uh, singing together and all that. Maybe. But I would do that only if both people were vaccinated, okay? Uh, from my perspective, I don't think it makes sense to try to do that otherwise. And even then, there will be a minuscule risk, but it's a very small risk. I mean, there's risk in life in general. For anybody with livelihood issues, of course, you should be wearing a mask. And, you know, staying further apart from people. I mean, most of us are washing our hands anally these days whenever we handle anything from outside. So I think those practical things will make a difference. That's what made a huge difference in Japan or Sweden. I mean, they didn't, they just, people are used to wearing masks and they just wore masks and it cut things down. The infection went to South Korea before it came here and you know, it could have been a horrible disease there, but they did bring it under control and people wore masks. So I think that is a practical thing to do, get used to the idea. I mean, I used to laugh at people. I've been to places in the Far East and I used to laugh at everybody wearing masks. I mean, and I joked about this, this January. I mean, I was sitting with our PhD students and one of our PhD students was from China. I mean, she went to college here, but she'd come from China. And I said, yeah, you know, I don't understand you know, how much protection are you getting from wearing the mask? And she said, no, no, there's a reason for it. And uh, I mean, she was absolutely right. I actually wrote her an email by April saying, sorry, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, That's I, I, she, we remember the conversation because it's just a group of 12 kids and we're sitting together chatting and joking about that. I'd just been to China in December. You know, very good immunologist there. I'd just been there and I'd come back and I'd say, yeah, hey, all these people wear masks, you know, like, you know, funny people. But it's the right thing to do. I, I actually think, you know, we'll be wearing masks in the future. In the winter, maybe we'll be wearing masks in flu season. What does it cost you to wear a mask and take it off? And, you know, uh, so I, I think that's something to consider. The, the incidence of kids getting type 1 diabetes went down in Italy 
just because they were holed up at home and they couldn't pick up lung infections, you know, because you need the trigger to get the type 1 diabetes. So even just that, every flare is linked to a viral infection in that disease, okay? And incidents dropped because kids were staying at home. I mean, this happened, and there's a nice study about it. So I think I'm getting new common sense about people, less people will shake hands, you know, more people will uh, wear masks. We'll lead our lives. I mean, you, when you need to take it off, you take it off, right? But when you have to, uh, you know, just travel around in the subway, then you'd wear it. I think it's a little bit more complicated when I look at Broadway performances, which I love to go to Broadway performances in the theater. You know, most of the audience is sitting quiet, quite removed from the performers. And, you know, so if you, if you, August, if you, put the audience, you know, somewhat socially distanced with masks and we're just sitting there quietly, I think we're all pretty safe. It's the performers that are then, you know, possibly um, exposing each other. And, and so what I was thinking about this particular phase is if we could up our testing strategies significantly, I'm hoping that the development and the testing phases of this pandemic will finally pay off so that we can actually all get test ourselves every week. Or, you know, I think professionals could be tested every week or every other day. And then that way they could get on stage and perform, not risk each other. And then we could mitigate the audience risk by ventilation, masking and social distancing. Just to summarize that then, that is pretty much the people that are most at risk in those performances really from the measures that can be taken are the performers. Yeah, I, I think so because they're the ones generating the aerosol. They're all in each other's space and uh, performers have to really project. And, you, and when you do that, you, know, you, you produce a lot more particles of vari variable sizes. Uh, my favorite example is when you watch the televised um, Hamilton show and you see the king singing and you see spit like flying out of his mouth it's my favorite and that you know that's visual but you don't see the other particles because they're too small and so all the performers are close to each other and they're exposing each other. So that does give us a little bit of hope there uh, for the future in terms of um, performances for sure and um, an in-person teaching um, with with all of these things we, that have been discussed so far, I mean, that really does wrap up the risks that we have and the things that we can do to to um, to lower that risk. We're talking mainly ventilation in any room that we're in, cleaning the air with air cleaners if necessary, vaccines uh, when we get that opportunity, and then the, the more common masking and goggles if we're looking to really go all out on that and, and to, to protect ourselves um, with the KN95 as well as the other person by wearing the mask. And then clearly this, the social distancing aspect um, has to continue. And so in and around that, if there's any way in which you can facilitate that in your teaching studio, then you're onto a good thing and, and uh, there's potential there to reopen as far as what Shelley and, and Shiva are saying here. Yeah, yeah. And like, like both of them said, you know, like especially Shelley, she kind of said, I can't see much um, getting back to normal for 12 months. So when you consider like, you know, 12 months 
of measures at least i guess in their prognosis so that's enough time to invest in something like that co2 monitor in the right kind of masks in in um, arranging your space in the way that facilitates um, your business like shiv said if you have livelihood issues if you need to be working then you absolutely also have those measures that need to be taken because it's about keeping everyone safe but also keeping you in business uh you know financially buoyant so that you can continue living your life in the way that um is comfortable and is is viable so i just think in in all those ways um like i said before our industry has been very impaired by this by this thing so we really have to put a lot into it when it comes to getting it back on its feet and getting people back into business. So yeah, I, I really can't, can't get behind their advice any more um, than, than I already am. And like I said, 12 months is, is, is enough time to put a lot of that effort in. And it's, it continues to be a judgment call at the end of the day, doesn't it? You know, based mm. on the, the, the many facets of this whole situation, um, you know, I was, I was listening recently to a podcast, Sam Harris, and uh, one of the things he mentioned, it was, it was kind of unrelated, but he mentioned about this pre, this past year, and he said, you know, that we've been, um, there's been a lot of single issue thinking over the past year from a lot of people. And uh, that it obviously relates to this as well, you know, and that's why we have to be, as a studio owner, and someone who's cr creating a, a um, environment for the public, we have to we have to take on that responsibility to consider every single aspect of this and that does include of course first it includes the health of the public it includes the the health service as we know not overwhelming it includes the mental health of kids and adults and the fact that we need to provide things increasingly in order to work ourselves out of these the what what the uh, isolation is 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 directed us towards in terms of mental health this past year but then lastly business does matter because the individual does have to make a living and this is what we see with some teachers i i feel fortunate and i'm sure you do the same that the the teaching that i do we've been doing it online for years and that's because it works and that's because the th the way in which we teach and the things that we do really really there isn't in fact, you could always go to far to say a lot of people would have more benefit, more value from, from lessons online in some ways. Hard to say, there's a, a mixed bag, but, but I do understand there are some people that teach in different ways and they may not, this may not suit them quite as well. And so I understand that that's why we have to try and work as hard as we can as a collective to try and work back to getting things in person, you know. And of course, the students, some students also don't uh, work quite as well uh, online and, and that's, that's that that also needs to be taken into consideration so as you say this is all of us working together to get this back on track that's kind of it for this uh podcast we're gonna finish with shifts and words from shift we, shift we think it's really really powerful we've got to say in a very dramatic manner we're just gonna leave it at the end his words but before that we just want to again say thank you to Dr. Shiv Pillai and Dr. Shelley Miller for their time. We completely are blown away by the fact that they, they, they could give their time at, the, at this time um, to help others. So we really do hope this is valuable to teachers and singers alike. Um, last thing from us, are we going to do anything more with this podcast? Are we, what we? Nah. Nah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and this was important. We felt like with our reach, we had to do something. We had to like try and get some sort of like word out. But are we is there any? Is it worth doing anything else? I'm not sure. Oh, definitely. You know what? So the thing is, what I do is I quite often. Um, uh, well. What, maybe I guess every month I go and look at the stats um, of the podcast uh, mm. in the entire series, and obviously across across the years, whatever it's six, seven years that we've we've released them, um, you do get to see how things kind of move forward. Um, and some of the what what I guess is without giving it away, but I think based on where we can see the the greatest amount of numbers in the past. That could give us a good idea as to what to talk about in the future, because mm. it's quite easy to see from our episode stats what people are really interested in and what people really end up sharing at the end of the day. So I think when I look at those, I think, oh, do you know what? That subject could pan out, fan out, whatever you want to call it, um, into uh, more useful stuff, because yes. we know that that's what people are wanting to listen to. I like it. And or we just talk about the same thing talk about the same thing again and just you know roll out another podcast of exactly the same content and it'd be cart you know, it out what evergreen yeah. so. what, a whole new meaning to evergreen just are you lazy are you, so one other thing are you teaching are you continue you're so you're online exclusively now yep. yeah yeah do you know I, I will go back in person for um maybe a couple times a month um traveling back into london which would be really cool but but yeah um like you said before we've both been teaching online for quite a while so in that sense there was a um there's there's a possibility for me to be teaching from home pretty much you know for 80 percent of of what i'm doing and also i do a lot of teacher training which is cool so getting big groups of teachers on zoom is actually quite facilitative because when they used they used to come to in-person workshops in london and fair point is that when people were considering the price of workshops um in person yeah. they'd have to add on the travel and the hotel and the food um which does rack up the expenses uh ends up being more than the course itself yes. uh so when you think about like yeah you know how effective actually i can do my teacher training online line um, not only is that I guess convenient for me in that sense but also I'm um, much more economical for the teachers involved so mm. so yeah definitely my business model has changed um, in that sense but it sounds like you've been able to get back to something in person which is cool yeah, you kind of have to really don't you because when you're paying for <laughs> when you're paying for a building <laughs> yeah, you really can't use bloody lease yeah it's tricky that one so <laughs> Yeah, um, no, you know, and, it, and it's not, you know, we, we could have, we could have gone back months ago, if we really if we, if we were making a decision purely on business, etc. But we didn't because it wasn't the right decision to make. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so jokes aside, yeah, we're doing that. Um, hopefully in August, we'll be able to get back to some sort of I say normality, but you know, working towards it at least. Uh, but aside from that, yeah, teaching online, like yourself, um, the actual my, my teaching, my teaching, life is very much just solely online so that's that's good to have but with that um we we'll have to love you and leave you mate uh, we'll leave you with with shiv uh and his wise words to finish see you soon bye everybody i'm for consensus i'm not for you know trying to paint somebody into a corner or have a different view but i do think there are some things that we are common sense and practical and that people who may have thought differently, I thought differently. I thought differently about bus, okay? I've changed my mind. Uh, I think you have to just consider what the evidence is and ask yourself, 
is it worth that risk? There's no doubt people are dying. You cannot, you know, get away from that. And uh, I think we all have to do our part. It's the, it's the human thing to do, is to protect others. And that should be what we do. That's all I can suggest to people. I mean, whatever your philosophy and political views are, it's time to just, you know, let's be practical. And it's not an American thing or a European thing. It's just a human thing that we normally don't want to hurt anyone else and we want to protect everyone. And that's what we should do.